Howdy, folks, and welcome back to another episode of Meta Ideological Politics. We are once again joined by Meta Maverick Layman Pascal to discuss some dangerous but gloriously juicy topics fascism, Nazism, the alt right, and their canon of philosophers. Topping the list are controversial thinkers Nietzsche and Heidegger, with others like Julius Evola, Alexander Dugan, and Carl Schmitt sleep, uh, slipping into the mix. Before relegating these nefarious fascists to the dustbin of intellectual history, it behooves us to understand their philosophies, how their ideas are appropriated and misappropriated, how ideologies and political agendas bias our interpretations, and how might we, from a meta-ideological standpoint, separate wheat from chaff to the extent that's possible? How can we deepen our understanding of why people are drawn to these dangerous ideas, and how can we steal the thunder of our ideological opponents by integrating their central narratives into a larger, more comprehensive, more integrative framework? What better person to help us do that than Nietzschean Canadian Layman Pascal? Layman, <laughs> welcome back. Nietzschean Canadian, I like that. <laughs> or should I say Canadian Nietzschean? Did I get the order wrong? <laughs> no, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Uh, hi, I'm Layman Pascal. And even though Nate's not here, I'm a Ryan and Nate-aholic. Uh, so anything that there's these two guys more control over the world is a good thing. Although I'm not sure I'm a, I love the term meta maverick, but in my mind, I'm uh, the normative center of the liminal web, the absolute conventionalist. And anyone who deviates from me is the maverick. Hey, fair enough. In the, in the liminal context, that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> from a normie perspective, absolutely not. But hey, we'll work with that. And yes, I will say Nate, my fearless uh, conservative co-host, is unfortunately sick after partying too hard down in New Orleans. So it's just me and you today. Let's let's let me start on a personal note, right? So you're kind of like seen as the Nietzsche guy in our communities, and I've never read any of Nietzsche's original works um, because I just could never get into him. I actually did read Heidegger's Being in Time and found that far more interesting. So maybe I, I'm just a closeted Nazi, <laughs> but. Obviously, these guys are very controversial thinkers, and there's a debate about, you know, are, is, there, is there philosophy and are their works kind of beyond the pale intrinsically, right? Or can we mine their works for signal and insight uh, and reappropriate or, you know, what I call titanium in it to new levels uh, and infuse with, with a new kind of angle of, of complexity and you know, kind of reframed in a more integrative and holistic way, some maybe some of the pathological edges can be shaven off and some core insights can be retained. And another question just to throw out there too is how do we retain the kind of original ethos or spirit of some of their works that probably generates most of the allure to their ideas, maybe in a very bad or pathological fascistic way. Uh, but when we're thinking of reappropriating them or recontextualizing the work, right, there is, I think there's always a danger of deviating so far from the original ethos of what they're saying, even if the content may be similar, that it, it kind of doesn't count anymore as like really using their ideas, right? Uh, it's been transformed too far away from what they were originally getting at. So I just, just curious for you, Layman, like what is your interest in Nietzsche? Like what do you, what do you get out of uh, his work and why are you not a Nazi? <laughs> um, a lot of Nietzsche is about style, right? Nietzsche tried to bring aesthetics and cognition together very tightly. That's, in my view, a spirituality where you're going to weave together different subjective subsystems. He's working on a spirituality that's uh, aesthetics and cognition entwined together to make something a hybrid that's more than either of the parts. 
So he's fun to read, especially the later stuff, right? Nietzsche is, I imagine him as, I always say this, like a Groucho Marx having a sword fight. There's a lot of irony. There's a lot of jokes. There's a lot of joy. There's a lot of spirituality that people mostly don't grasp because they come in with a preset assumption of what he's talking about. And then they also fall into these landmines that he leaves around. He's deliberately, as he says this over, he's not writing for everyone. The average reader and even the average philosopher is not supposed to be able to step in there and understand what he's saying. He's leaving booby traps around to mislead you. Well, he goes on a journey, which is essentially a proto-integral journey. He's going to take many different perspectives on subjects and try to see what kind of uh, integrative feeling he can build up. The classic Nietzsche line out of his notebooks is, our task is to see things as they are. Our method is to look through millions of eyes, right? So that's extremely integral, right? He's much more Ken Wilbur than one expects. Uh, there's enough complexity and enough multi-perspectival richness in Nietzsche that you can at least do what I do, which is make a plausible argument that he's actually a, a, a meta-modern integral thinker ahead of his time. Uh, that's not quite true of these other guys we're going to be talking about. And I don't think they do as much self-development and self-introspection as he does. And a lot of people, their idea of Nietzsche is from sort of university generalizations and pop cultural appropriations of his early writings. And they don't follow his developmental journey through, and they don't privilege the right things in his writing. So that's, that's one of the things I love is it's extremely complex. If you want to get to the core of what I think Nietzsche is, which is obviously colored by my own interpretation and projections, right? But my Nietzsche, you got to dig in there. You got to listen to his instructions about how to read him. Uh, and you have to try to keep a background mental map of all the things he's trying to say, because he does these little like bursts. He goes down a tunnel, grabs a thing, gets an inside chunk that might be true, doesn't assert that it's true, phrases it in a way that's both poetic and off-putting, and then presents it to you and moves on to the next one. So right, he's doing tremendous work. We would be fools not to try to take advantage of the, uh, the ore that this guy has been mining out of the ground. <laughs> Right? He's just a crazy like mining badger, just like pulling stuff up. And a lot of that stuff is gold. The way he phrases it is very compact, very complex. He builds a lot into things. Uh, and he does it in this just beautiful, fun, aesthetic, uh, dancing kind of way that I think we, a lot of non-Germans don't realize how fun, how dancey, how prancy the prose actually is. We come at it through a kind of Anglo lens and we associate him with this brooding, retro-romantic, uh, <laughs> uh, pluralistic, relativistic critic, which is only a tiny piece of what he's doing. So what is your best steel man of people who say that his work, not only in will to power, right, but all of his work, there are seeds of really, really bad ideas. And it's almost inevitable that if one were to take those points seriously and study his work as objectively as possible, the end result is you would become some kind of fascist. Like, well, why do so many people believe that? And what is your best steel man of that argument? Sure. And I'm going to do that caveat I just mentioned before, which is He's specifically, and says this out loud, not writing for people to be able to understand what he's saying by glancing at it. He's not a Facebook author. You can't just grab the message. Uh, so here's what I would say if I was trying to make the argument that he is problematic, right? That he constantly, um, out of his own uh, 
emotional difficulties and out of his own uh, problems in relationship and his, his jaggedness, his armoring, his inability to express himself smoothly, he becomes explosive. And in the explosive presentation of themes around difference, themes around ethnic identity, um, themes around the potential harshness of the drives that move the world in a Darwinian sense, when people discuss that in a way that isn't careful, isn't smooth, isn't easy to accept, then the natural effect of that is a sense that these are the important themes and you have to go at it with some kind of uh, uh, explosive confrontational rigor. And that's what I see in a number of these other thinkers, right? That's what I see sort of in a Dugan or an Ebola. Uh, that these are people who love these themes and they want to leap at them with a kind of uh, adolescent emotional angst and romanticism. And it's very easy to get that impression from Nietzsche. Now, I would argue that he's deliberately trying to give you the wrong impression. But the fact that he's doing that means that a lot of people are going to take the wrong impression. Right. And whether or not he meant it, because he's a strong anti anti Semite in a lot of his writings, nonetheless, he writes it in a way that makes it very easy for Nazis, anti Semites, and the regressive form of conservatism to latch onto. So the Steelman argument is he does it in a way that makes it super easy for those instincts to be provoked in people. And those instincts lead people toward bad political and social decisions. Great. That was awesome. So here's how I think about Nietzsche. Well, for this podcast, we'll, we'll start with Nietzsche and then we'll kind of seep into the other guys. Sure. Um, what I find really interesting about Nietzsche is that he, he can, his work, right? Appropriations of his work can fork in completely different directions, right? He could be part of the alt-right canon and have inspired Nazism and far-right fascism. Or uh, he could have, you know, he was very influential on the work of Michel Foucault, who kind of took a lot of these Nietzschean themes around power and so forth and kind of sociologized them and thought about them in a more systemic, institutional, and historical way, probably in a way that Nietzsche would have vigorously disagreed with. But nevertheless, Foucault was very influenced by Nietzsche and took it in a decidedly systemic and leftist direction, right? And, and same thing with uh, Heidegger, right? Derrida was very much influenced by Heidegger and, and Nietzsche, as were a lot of these postmodern, you know, French uh, post-structuralist thinkers, right? So it's interesting to think how these guys, like you could go one way, uh, you could go the other way, completely in the opposite direction, or maybe there's even like a third approach, which maybe we're fleshing out here. So this kind of a meta question in the abstract, how do you think about why and how there can be such diverging interpretations and reappropriations of the same source material. Yeah, I think that comes down to um, two things. One is the complexity of the thinker. Anybody who's doing complex work can be misinterpreted in multiple directions because the misinterpreters are not going to fully understand the work and the work is not going to fall into the categories understood by the interpreter. So they've got to put it in one direction or another as far as they're concerned. And so they do that. But the person they're talking about is operating in a multi-categorial frame. Um, the other part is the vividness, right? So you could say the same thing about Ken Wilber. Like, is he conservative or liberal? Mm, it's a good question, right? He could be taken in either way because it's a complex set of multi-perspectival insights. But Ken Wilber doesn't do as much as Nietzsche did the use of really vivid terminology, right? Really... You know, we want to talk about blood, going to talk about with vividness, you're going to use metaphors of angst and violence and explosions and things that really 
you're not sure where to go with those because they're just so exciting. Nietzsche wants it to be exciting. When things are exciting, it's easy to misread them yeah, in either totally. direction. Yeah. Right, 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 right. I want to get to this book that I read, uh, the one book I've read on this subject, which naturally makes me an expert. It's called Dangerous Minds, Nietzsche, Heidegger, and the Return of the Far Right by a scholar named Ronald Boehner. And, to, and it, this book is about Nietzsche and Heidegger. And he basically, this is my kind of crude distillation of the book, right? The appeal to Nietzsche is this revivification of the heights. And the appeal of Heidegger is this kind of re- rooting right at the kind of depths of being that are that he wants to reclaim that he feels are lost in liberal modernity so so let me read to you um i'll be reading passages from this book and can i want to get your reaction so th this is what he says to open the book for all of them nietzsche and heidegger hierarchy and rootedness are more morally compelling than equality and individual liberty democracy diminishes our humanity rather than elevates it we are unlikely to understand why fascism is still kicking around in the 21st century unless we are able to grasp why certain intellectuals of the early 20th century gravitated towards fascism, namely on account of a grim preoccupation with the perceived soullessness of minority and the resolve to embrace any politics, however extreme, that seemed to them to promise a spiritual renewal, to quote Heidegger. For these thinkers and their contemporary adherents, liberalism, egalitarianism, and democracy are a recipe for absolute deracination and hence for a profound contraction of the human spirit, which presumably, presumably is what Heidegger had in mind when he spoke of spiritual renewal. In one decisive text, Heidegger asserted that he learned from Nietzsche that democracy is ultimately nihilism. Thoughts? <laughs> There's a lot of stuff there. Um... First of all, there's a, an issue around what Wilbur calls the pre-trans fallacy. And the, and the problem here is whether the pre-trans fallacy is whether the thinkers are falling into the pre-trans fallacy or whether the interpreters are falling into the pre-trans fallacy about those thinkers. And that applies to both the thinkers who support these guys and also the critics. Right? So in terms of Nietzsche, I think this guy is falling into a pre-trans fallacy about what Nietzsche is talking about. Can you Nietzsche explain a pre-trans fallacy? Sure. The pre-trans fallacy is the idea that um, below a certain threshold of complexity, it's you're unable to tell what the greater level of complexity looks like. So if you're pre-rational, you can't tell the difference between yourself and somebody who's better than rationality. And if you're rational, you also can't tell that difference. You think everybody who says they're trans-rational is pre-rational because that's the only thing you know about, things you can see. So neither the rational nor the pre-rational person can tell what transrationality is actually about. One of them fantasizes they have it, the other one fantasizes it doesn't exist, but they're literally not able to see these range of patterns that they would need to be able to see. And so the natural effect is they conflate things that are outside of the conventional referent. Right? So you say, well, uh, I, I have a criticism of modernity, say. Is that criticism coming from a place in me that is not yet capable of appreciating modernity? Or is it coming from a place that understands modernity and demands that it becomes something better? The pre-trans fallacy describes people who can't tell the difference between those things. When it comes to Nietzsche, I think this guy is a little bit mistaken, right? In Nietzsche's first book, The Birth of Tragedy from the Spirit of Music, he is very, uh, has a kind of a retro-romantic mood. Um, and in his subsequent books, he looks back on that and says, basically, I was committing the pre-trans fallacy, right? If you read his final book where he describes all of his books, 
he says that first book is the worst one and it's kind of the worst one because he diagnoses himself as succumbing to this kind of regressive retro romantic fantasy that doesn't yet grasp modernity which he tries to do in the books that follow that um, with heidegger it's a little more tricky i think heidegger really does have um a deep-seated emotional antipathy toward modernity that leads him to uh, fantasize about pre-modern conditions to some degree, even though he is really a complex, great, deep thinker. Um, the idea of the heights and the hierarchy is interesting, right? Anybody who's familiar with metamodernism or integral theory and developmental thought in general in the 21st century will recognize this as potentially being the reintroduction of the vertical dimension of growth and depth which is usually excluded from modern thinking and some postmodern thinking as well. So we would see that and go, listen, that's potentially very good if it's done right, but are these guys doing it right? Um, Nietzsche has a great line about the tree can only grow as tall as the roots grow deep, right? So he's not just telling you about the heights all the time, even though he does say, we have to embrace this verticality. We have to learn to breathe the air uh, of these new elevated positions as if we were up in the mountains. But also there's a lot about returning to the body, returning to the earth, growing down and deepening in Nietzsche. Um, <laughs> I don't remember all the things that were in that quote. <laughs> well, let's talk about the systemic uh, instantiations and structures of modernity. Yeah, which which it seems like these guys are vigorously critiquing and blaming for this soulless deracination, disenchanting, yes. despiritualization. Right? Like, to what degree do you think uh, these are intrinsic problems with these modern institutional structures of like democracy and their correlating value structures like egalitarianism? Yeah, there are strong flaws in modernity, structural flaws. Right? Many people have tried to point this out. All the postmoderns and also the metamoderns have tried to point this out. It's felt instinctively by people with pre-modern sensibilities. Uh, they just don't really know what the problem is. They can point to where the problem is, but they can't say what the problem is. I think we're looking at a system that, um, I mean, this is a problem with all these philosophers we're going to talk about, is we have to make a decision in each case as to whether a person is saying there's something better than modernity, or whether they're saying modernity inherently sucks and the pre-modern alternative is inherently better all right so one of those to me is regressive and one of those is progressive so when you say there's a lack of there's a need for spiritual renewal and a deeper authenticity than is provided by modern civilization that seems self-evident to most people who grew up in modern civilization <laughs> we would like something better than what we have great we can improve on that if we think the system itself is just evil and flawed and our ancestors magically always had something better than that that what the renewal is doing is returning to the pre-modern condition and then i think we end up with an error that leans itself toward fascism although i would probably dispute Biner's understanding of what fascism is when we look at modernity um I, it does a number of different things systemically modernity tends to um, first of all, increase the mass of technology, of people, of systems, takes over the entire planet, generates polarization wherever it goes and uses polarization to feed itself. Uh, I think I said in my Stoa interview that the modernity, the modern liberal centrist modern narrative is not, uh, is not a story that you can fight back against. It's a fight promoter who gets paid when the fight happens. 
right? The modernity takes advantage of polarities, structurally takes advantage of them, just like most modern political systems play themselves off between a so-called conservative and a so-called liberal half, or modern technology uses the positive and negative polarity to set up electrical systems. So that's how modernity functions. And it, because it can play opposites off each other and constantly adapt to whatever comes up, it's extremely fluid and can constantly get back in control of any situation. So there's a sense of claustrophobia and a sense of being unable to get outside of the system, which is very disturbing when you look at the accumulating results of what the system produces through its successes. Modernity solves many problems, but it solves them narrowly, right? We're going to raise the GDP. Uh, yeah, but at the same time, we basically are destroying the oceans, ruining biodiversity, <laughs> upsetting people, ruining their traditional association with the land and with themselves and all this kind of thing. So modernity creates sets of accumulating problems that result specifically from its successes. And at the same time, it undermines the life world of previous civilizations. And at the same time, it also fails to regenerate itself fully. Um, I don't know when I talked about this recently, maybe with Marshall, but Gurdjieff's critique of modernity is that it fails to educate people sufficiently to actually inhabit modernity, right? That if you had people who were capable of living in modern civilization, they would be like gods. But we create a modern civilization, we actually develop people through modern education systems that are not even close to being able to regenerate modernity. Essentially, it's generating pre-modern people so that they can drive cars and vote predictably and work in factories and do all the things modernity wants. So modernity generates pre-modernity, destroys the life world of pre-modern civilization. So what it generates is a distressed modernity that it puts through its mechanism of polarization. And so all of that is a terrible situation, especially with the accumulating negative background results that it imposes upon the world. This is not uh, an acceptable system. It has some huge flaws externally and internally, and these flaws have to be resolved or transcended. So it's not foolish or dangerous or fascist for people to point out the fact that there are intrinsic built-in functions of this program that are going to have negative results, and we have to get beyond it somehow. But there's two ways to do that. <laughs> right, right. It reminds me of, I think, Roger Scruton talked about this in one of his books on conservative philosophy. And I think he might have attributed this to Edmund Burke, right? But he, he makes a distinction between the reactionary and the conservative, right? So this kind of fascistic, retro-romantic, regressive mythologization of the past, of a past state of affairs that we need to return to is the reactionary which he's against, right? That's not true conservatism, right? He says true conservatism is about taking the essence of the past and the good parts of the system currently that we want to retain and slowly and gradually integrating them into the ever-evolving future, right? So it's not just about canceling the present moment and returning to the past, but integrating the past as we move forward organically into the future, right? So I think that's a good distinction that, that's uh, you know, important to ponder. I want to get to this, this issue of this theme of hierarchy, right, which it seems like, you know, you had made an allusion to uh, some of the parallels between Nietzsche's understanding of, of hierarchy and the kind of importance of a hierarchy culturally, right, and some of these more uh, progressive meta-disciplines, right. Um, and so this is a quote from the book, and he's, and uh, Boehner's talking about Evola's um, uh, uh, appropriation of, of Nietzsche's understanding of hierarchy. So he says, the core problem is that living in the world governed by the regime of the masses, 
the regime of the mediocre soul, where one ought to have hierarchies of rank and spiritual superiority. One instead has merely hierarchies defined by technical expertise. This for Evola constitutes the absurdity of modern existence, right? So it seems like there's two kinds of hierarchies, right? There's a kind of technocratic, meritocratic, capitalistic hierarchy that I think a lot of us associate with our kind of predominant modern capitalist uh, bureaucracy. And, and what, but what these guys are talking about is a kind of revivification of a spiritual hierarchy, right? I think this concept could become very dangerous very easily if we're not careful with it. So what is your best uh, titanium man of this idea? And how do we as a modern civilization try to integrate whatever signal is in this noise right here? Sure. The, um, I mean, one of the classic ways to do it is to distinguish between two types of hierarchy, right? Wilbur calls it holarchy and hierarchy. There's been a conversation over the years based on Rianne Eisler's books about dominator hierarchy and a more kind of organic hierarchy because everything in nature functions in some kind of hierarchical structuring, but those hierarchies are not necessarily oppressive hierarchies, right? So we have to look for the specific elements that make a system oppressive. And usually those are elements which are out of time. They're, they're from a simpler organization system than the one that we're trying to use. Um, hierarchies of depth, let's say, which is also height, this introduction of vertical hierarchies, which Ebola is discussing, but any, it's, I think it's important to understand Ebola is primarily a magician and an occultist. He's not really a philosopher, even though he draws on philosophers. And what he's sensing is the idea that there is something real about depth, which is the same argument that all the saints and all the yogis and everybody has made throughout history. There's ways of being more yourself. There's ways of being more in touch with the world. There's ways of being more present than you are. And what the system we have around us offers us is the ability to be at a certain level, but it makes it hard to fall from that level or get beyond that level. When Nietzsche thinks about power, it's important to ask yourself what he's imagining. Heidegger has a great essay on what the will to power is, right? And, and how you have to make sure you're not thinking about simple human power systems, right? We tend to think about power as if it's something that goes along with just money or status. But when Nietzsche is thinking power, he's thinking everything that energy does in general. And when Nietzsche thinks of who has more will to power, he's thinking of philosophers and poets, Right? He's not thinking of presidents. He's not thinking of rich people. He's not thinking of the person who gets to talk when the other people don't get to talk. In his mind, those are extremely low degrees of empowerment. So the idea of this hierarchy in the spiritual sense is different gradations of what we expect power to mean. Right. So that at the top of the power hierarchy, you put Buddha or something like that, right? A person who has incorporated everything is extremely authentic, is extremely unique, has access to the kind of coherence of certainty that empowerment gives you. And at near the bottom of the hierarchy, you just have some animals trying to scheme over top of each other for the tiny little bit of dregs of power that they have. So when we think about this spiritual hierarchy, we're not thinking about one system of power that you can get ahead in and get over top of other people in. We're thinking about degrees of your understanding of what power means. And that as people advance in this hierarchy, their sense of what it means to be empowered changes at each level, so to speak. Yeah, I think that these are good distinctions because 
I think a lot of people would read what Evola just said and think, oh, he's talking about something like the Indian caste system, right? Like, like a kind of a rigid, uh, of, you know, social hierarchy uh, where people are kind of ranked arbitrarily, but there is a kind of spiritual hierarchy in there, right? There's a kind of a aristocratic element, right? Kind of very regressive, very reactionary element to it, kind of like a Joseph de Maistre's counter-revolutionary thinking, um, right, at the, during the uh, French Revolution. So yeah, I think I think these are all good distinctions, but this bleeds into another part. I think that's that's to me very uh, uh, you know relevant these days, right? And it has to do with culture and Nietzsche's critique of culture and his understanding of what a healthy culture looks like. And obviously, this gets into the culture wars. And I think like you know Steve Bannon and Breitbart's approach, right, of really emphasizing culture. Or was it like politics is downstream from culture? I think, or was it the other way around? Anyway, culture is important, right? So I want to read to you this long, this long paragraph, and then, right, and then you can um, reflect. All right, so again, Bader. I want to zero in on two key notions that I think define what's most important to Nietzsche as a political philosopher. The first is the idea of the horizonlessness of modernity. That's a mouthful to be sure, but it's just about pronounceable. In Nietzsche's view, to live a meaningful life, one needs to have a real sense of vibrancy and vitality with respect to who one takes oneself to be and what one considers oneself to be living for. That is, one needs a life-affirming experience of existence. Life to be life needs to affirm itself and push itself to transcend itself. And none of that is possible without a culture with definite boundaries that understands with utter clarity what its purpose is, its whither and wherefore. Life without this life-affirming sense isn't real life. Coasting through life, not knowing what one is living for, is a phantom life or a hollow life, a life without substance. Related to this is the fact that there are important texts where Nietzsche expresses hostility to modern secularity and expresses receptivity to the great historical world religions. This notwithstanding the fact that Nietzsche is without reason customarily regarded as in effect one of the founding atheists of late modernity. This seems paradoxical and it is, but there's an intelligible logic here. Civilization defining religions legislate robust cultural horizons. Modernity, including perhaps secular modernity, opens these horizons, which in Nietzsche's view defeats all possibility of a life-affirming existence. Yeah, I think that's a great critique of some of these other thinkers, but I don't think it is a fair critique of what Nietzsche is trying to say. But there's there's some there's some validity to it, right? I think the invalid part is Nietzsche is not proposing the ancient religions over modernity. What he's doing is critiquing them all together. He has a critique of religion, science, and postmodernism all together. He thinks they're all making the same mistake, and then they can make it in healthier or less healthy ways. What he's looking toward is what he calls the, the good Europeans. He's we good Europeans. And what he means is a cosmopolitan internationalist attempt to orchestrate the whole planet into a peak experience and flow state maximizing civilization in which some people are taking a lot of internal risks, uh, what he calls the attempter philosophers. This is who he's writing for, these special attempters. This is not for everyone. Not everyone is supposed to be doing what Nietzsche says. Most people are just participating in the system and they have to have a system that allows them to maximize their flow states and they may or may not be ready to go through the kind of um, perplexity that the atheist and the agnostic and the nihilist who realizes the condition of nihilism has to go through. This is a special journey for people that want to cross through that ambiguity to the other side. 
So Nietzsche is sort of recommending we set up good systems for most people and the people who feel drawn to it cross through this turbulence toward the other side where they can play a role in the establishment of a level of empowerment and flow that will go beyond the normal meaning of what it is to be human. But I think there's an element in there that we've touched on a number of times, which is he thinks that transition, which again is for a few people, not for everyone. It's for the people who understand what he's saying. He's not making general proclamations about human society. He's writing specifically for a certain kind of reader who he says in general at the time has not even been born yet. Right, so most people are not supposed to be able to receive the message, but the people who receive the message pick up the signal. Part of what they need to do is internalize uh, the kernel of difference. And I think that's one of the scary things that people associate with prior societies. Because if we look at a prior society, if we look at, say, the Vedic caste system, one of the things that scares us is the sense of this absolute difference between the layers in society, right? That the Brahmins could do whatever they want to the Chandalas, right? That's, that's creepy and scary. Now, what Nietzsche is saying is, that's how human beings evolved. We're, you know, there's primitivism, there's cruelty, there's war, there's all this awful stuff. And what we need to do is spiritualize that. Right? He talks about the degree of spiritualization from reproductive mechanics to what we call love. And why can you not do a similar spiritualization of cruelty or of any other primitive and barbaric thing can be transformed in the degree to which we've transformed reproduction into love? How do you refine these things to a higher level of power? And so one of the things he's trying to do is talk about how you take the pathos of difference, which is this gap between we don't have to care about you or we're better than you or we have horses and metal and you don't so we can conquer you. There's a painful gap there. And he says, you have to take that painful gap on board. When we're moving forward, if you're going to take the risk of becoming one of these new philosophers or these participants in the creation of the new spiritual post-metaphysical civilization, you have to make a place in yourself for the, the absolute difficulty of that sensation of the real pathos of difference. Uh, you have to challenge your own tendency to want everything to be homogenous, right? Let's say you're literate. This is good, but you therefore automatically assume that everyone else should be made literate so there's no difference between you and everyone else. Now, that's a different question than saying, should we make people literate, right? You go, yes, we should set up school systems and make that available, but it's not the case that just because you find something valuable, everyone else should also have the same value as you. You have to be able to live through the idea that people are different, that there's a real gap, and that gap stings when you investigate it. And the stingingness of that gap has to be enfolded in order to generate these post-postmodern uh, realities. I think that's his argument. Very interesting. Yeah, I want to tease out a distinction here with different types of difference or different notions of difference, right? Because I think one of the things you can see, in, in, as you just mentioned from Nietzsche's, right, where there's an emphasis on difference and how that might connect to power and hierarchy and a grand revitalized culture. But at the same time, I think the postmodern emphasis on difference is very different, right? In that we don't 
necessarily want to emphasize differences, and we definitely don't want to pretend like there are intrinsic ontological or value differences between people or groups. But differences are created by a, an oppressive system that treats people and groups differently. So we have to acknowledge difference in order to acknowledge the larger systemic inequalities and injustices that should not be producing difference, but they do, right? That's kind of the kind of, you know, left, right? The critical race theory, critical left, right? It's focusing on difference, not to fixate or reify difference, even though that might be an unintended externality or, or unintended uh, uh, negative effect of focusing on difference, but it's really to get to the larger systemic structures that produce difference unjustly. But this is different though, right? Like, like I, I don't think necessarily that's what Nietzsche was getting at. Like, how would you make that distinction? Like, like, for example, some people say, do you focus on difference in the, with the value of equality, or do you focus on difference to try to reify something higher? Exactly. So I think what Nietzsche is saying is one of those two forms of difference is integral to the movement of the individual along a vertical hierarchy of spiritual depth, right? So you need to be able to challenge unproductive hierarchies in the world, and he's very critical of a lot of normal systems of what he thinks of as low-level power. But in order to move up what he thinks of as the real hierarchy, the hierarchy that the saints and philosophers and poets are trying to move along, you have to be able to integrate into yourself the sensation of difference. And that's a challenge to modern notions of homogeneity. Right, that when we get mass culture, we have to be careful that we don't get lost in the assumptions of mass culture and take those on board as the de facto value systems that we're operating from. Right. So is it, you know, like I might look at someone and go, hey, this person is suffering. I want to help them. Or I actually think we should change the way we've set out the regulatory system in order to produce um, less suffering so that more people have more chances to have peak experiences and flow states. Now, that's different than me just accepting de facto that they and I are the same, that we want the same things, that it would be best if we were in the same condition. That's not necessarily the case. I can't yet tell if it's the case if I'm not willing to emotionally and even physiologically take on board the intensity of the feeling of difference, right? If you think that the difference between the master and the slave is the feeling that you can't tolerate, then you're not yet in a position to be able to make an objective distinction between what's a valid and non-valid hierarchy, right? You have to sort of eat the differential yourself before you could make a discernment. If you reject the differential itself as the problem or as the mechanism of oppression, then you can't yet be impartial about that distinction. You're making the de facto assumption, which is built into the system we live in, that everything should be leveled and equalized, right? And many of the existential philosophers were critiquing that because value is a difference of value in many, right? Kierkegaard was making this argument. You don't have value unless you have a value difference. So if you want to increase value, even if you want to increase value for everyone, you have to embrace gaps and differences that are, that are going to feel scarily fundamental. Uh, and if you can't do that, then you're not yet a viable evaluator of the problems that we're in. I want to add one more thing actually here, because there's a great book called Nietzsche and Religion by Julian Young. 
And the argument of this book is that Nietzsche is a religious communitarian, fundamentally, and that all of his other points are meant to support that. Now, it's not the case that Julian Young is correct, but it provides a very good antidote to the assumption that Nietzsche is a pre-modernist atheist of some kind, right? So you should at least keep those both, right? There's a strong argument from some scholars that Nietzsche is fundamentally concerned about um, religiously active communities of, for the well-being of all, and that's in Julian Young's book. Very interesting. Important to note. Um, so I want to start pivoting to, to Heidegger and maybe some of these other guys. All right. Um, and I remember you said before, though, that you don't believe that Nietzsche's work intrinsically contains <laughs> or, or will devolve somehow into Nazism or fascism. But Heidegger might be a slightly different story. Uh, I, I don't know, like, like maybe his work is intrinsically more, I, other than the fact that Heidegger was explicitly a card-carrying Nazi and, and had very, very problematic political affiliations. But that aside, right, how, how do you think about the intrinsic differences, if we can even say that, about Nietzsche and Heidegger's work and how Heidegger might be even more dangerous? Yeah, I mean, uh, the issue of anti-Semitism is a great example, right? We have... Um, we have some evidence that Heidegger was strongly anti-Semitic, even aside from his need to perform under, if you were living in a Nazi regime and you want to be a thinker, obviously you're going to have to get along with the regime to some degree so that you have the freedom to do your thought work. That's, that's true. But privately, <laughs> Heidegger appears to have expressed some extremely anti-Semitic views, whereas Nietzsche expressed extreme anti-anti-Semitic views in many of his personal letters and writings. So there's a gap there in terms of their personal sensibility. And when you read Heidegger, his work on phenomenology is fantastic, right? His analyses of being, his analyses of time, his analyses of authenticity, these are really profound because he's adapted from Husserl this way of like crawling through thinking without falling back into normal assumptions of thought. It re he really is one of the great philosophers. But in his personal sensibility, he leans toward uh, a kind of idealistic retro fantasy of the folk and the lands, right? And the idea that the problems of modernity would be solved if only we could get back in a kind of um, traditionalist slash hippie sense of just regular people living regular lives before this technocratic system was imposed on us. And I think in that is an expression of the fundamental fascistic danger. Now, I want to be careful here because uh, thinking integrally, I have a different definition of fascism than a lot of people, right? I'm thinking of multi-level fascism. So for me, systems can become contaminated by nihilistic traits, which are traits that nullify their own value. And when, these, when this nihilism builds up to the point where it starts to be enacted, where they start getting out on the street and enacting it, then it becomes fascism. It's mobilized nihilism. And its goal is to move from what is perceived to be an unstable system back to a simpler attractor, back to a, a system that they thought was working. So if you're looking at Germany in the 30s, you're looking at a system whose normative assumption is modernity, Right. People can read, they have industrialization, they have science, it's a modern system. And a modern system rolling itself back towards a theocratic, uniform, medieval system is an example of fascism. But a postmodern system rolling back to modernity or a traditional system rolling back to tribal, those would all be examples of fascism as well. 
So I'm trying to do a multi-level or a stratified notion of fascism. It's the active attempt to take a system from the level that's considered to be normative for that system to a, a social attractor state that's more simple than that, right? And the reason they're doing that is because the current system is failing. And this is where the critique of modernity comes in, right? It's not just that people were randomly sympathizing <laughs> with earlier social systems. They're doing that because the modern system is failing them somehow, right? It's provoking its regeneration. If modernity was succeeding in us and between us, then we would be on its side. It's the failure of the modern systems that causes people to be overly sympathetic to pre-modern systems. And I think Heidegger was in that situation. He's emotionally romantic, even though he's intellectually extremely competent and profound. Right, right. Yeah, that's a very interesting uh, spin on fascism. It, it certainly deviates from more conventional definitions, right? Because um, when I think of fascism, I think of several several traits or several tendencies that manifest in different contexts, right? So the kind of conventional definition, right, is like far right uh, cultural, like hyper-nationalism culturally combined with very draconian top-down state authoritarianism. That's kind of like the classic 20th century definition of fascism, right? Um, and I, I, to me, there's a kind of like, <laughs> like toxic masculinity, writ large hyper-militarization that usually punch it takes pleasure in punching down at certain groups right it's a kind of like there's a, there's a punching down or like this this hyper activation of the moral purity sanctity impulse like to use Jonathan Haidt terms right that can lead to this idea of like trying to purify and extirpate all of the evil bad corrupting influences whether that be attributed to a racial group or other things but even but just that impulse to me can have a kind of like a, a fascistic energy or, or quality or ethos or aesthetic to it, right? So I'm thinking also about the kind of aesthetic dimensions of what, and, and now I want to, I want to get into this, this part right here, because um, this is a, a section on, um, on the, on the Heidegger part of the book. Um, and he's talking about this theme of rootedness and mentions Alexander Dugan, who's, who's obviously a very uh, relevant figure these days, right? With Putin's uh, encouragement for Ukraine. So this is what he says. I want to get your reflections. He says, uh, Boehner says, the defining sin of liberal society is that it lacks rootedness in, in ethnos, or what he says, artificial societies that have broken ties with their ethnic base. Heider can affirm the metaphysical destiny of the German folk, and Dugan can affirm the metaphysical destiny of Russia without either of them counting as a vulgarly modern nationalist. Similarly, one can be a fervent anti-Semite, as Heidegger was and as Dugan is, without counting as a racist. The liberal West is approaching its final eschaton, and the Greek logos will be reborn in Russia after Dugan's conservative revolution definitively overthrows liberal barbarism. Heidegger as a Volkish fascist can only be understood by fellow Volkish fascists. Well, <laughs> that's reductive. <laughs> <I think. laughs> There's a lot of, right? If, if what you're interested in is the relationship between being and time, you can get a lot out of Heidegger without ever going anywhere near his, I think, legitimately Volkish fascist tendencies. Right? That's not the case that these people are only one thing. He's working in different areas along different lines. Now, Dugan, <laughs> I'm not very impressed by. 
there's some interesting ideas about how ethnicities and cultural domains are related uh, internationally. And that's an interesting counterposition to the normal um, liberal bureaucratic bullshit story, right? Which should be balanced out in some fashion. But generally speaking, Dugan is a corrupted version of Heidegger and Heidegger is already flawed on this proposal because he's over-associating pre-modern ethnicities with the solution to the modern problem. And really, you have to go beyond modernity to solve that problem. And the best parts of Heidegger suggest ways of doing that, right? Ways of being more authentic than modernity provides you. If we can take advantage of those tools the way we would take advantage of spiritual practices, then you have the opportunity to be postmodern, metamodern, to do something better than modernity is doing. But I think it's rather naive to think that there are these um, naturalistic rooted ethnicities on this modernity that is unrooted. Now, it's true that a lot of modernity doesn't provide rootedness, but it's not because of a fundamental difference between modernity and the traditional societies. It's because of how modernity is comporting itself and also that it's young. Right? It's hard to do in a couple hundred years what somebody took a thousand years to do. But the important part of thinking about a people is that it has to be understood that a people is created. This is the argument of our Ortega y Gasset, right? In The Revolt of the Masses, which is a beautiful collection of essays, one of the things he touches on, because he was, a, uh, he was sort of the philosopher involved in the Spanish Civil War. And they temporarily had control of Spain. And he was in disagreement with some of the other people who wanted to purify, wanted to get back to pure Spanish nationalism. And his argument was Spanish nationality is something that's created over time by the integration of many features. It's not that pure Spaniards just occupied Spain. It's that people who were occupying this area over time through many productive incidents of integration became what we now call the Spanish. So that the, the peoples, the ethnicities are products, right? And this should be a key postmodern insight that we are, we need these, we, we need bodies of coherent cultural fields to help support us and uh, mitigate these self moving effects of our technology and ideas those have to be constrained by a field of shared meaning but you don't get a field of shared meaning by purity purity is a regressive move inherently associated with fascism now you were talking about the kind of ten tendency to associate fascism with a kind of uh, hyper masculine right-wing nationalism and that's true you do find it there but also, we find people point out that there's fascism in suppressive versions of apparently leftist dogmas as well, right? It would be, it's not out of the question to think that Stalin was a fascist. It's not out of the question to think that certain versions of the woke phenomenon have strong fascist tendencies. So there's a right and a left version of the fascist phenomenon. And it's exhibited in the fact that while proposing that they are supporting modern or postmodern values, their enactment procedures are returning to a pre-modern form. They're starting to do something that is normal for medieval society, but abnormal for contemporary society. So it's a it's a way of saying it's a role, it's an instance of a rollback from a modern to a pre-modern, which is one example of how fascism works as a general pattern of rollback. 
Uh, the, I mean, there's an interesting argument that you can make that people of who want ethnic distinction are not necessarily problematic. And that's a very uh, slippery distinction. Right? It's like saying uh, the baseball stadium has a special bathroom for whites and a special bathroom for blacks. Now, is that a problem? Well, not necessarily, right? To be distinguished is not necessarily problematic. The emperor carried in his cart is distinguished from the people, but it's not a negative distinguishing. He's being valued by being given something of his own. We still have male and female bathrooms. I still get to have my family in my house and not some other family. So there's no inherent problem in making these distinctions. The problem comes from the fact that most of the people who most strongly want to make these distinctions are actually implying some other negative evaluation program that rolls them back toward a more primitive version of society. Did that answer any of your questions? <laughs> <laughs> well, it brought up a, a, a few more. Um, one comment I had, one thought I had about the kind of you know, left-right fascism. I don't know how much you know about the Nation of Islam, you know, like what, what Malcolm X, uh, the religion that he basically converted to, and, and I was reading the doctrine of it. It's basically like black nationalist Scientology, right? It certainly has a lot of fascistic elements to it. Um, obviously, there, there is some cross-pollination with the Black Panthers, but the Black Panthers are a very interesting collection of different memes, right? They are totally pro-gun, Second Amendment rights. You know, arm, you know, arm defense uh, was a huge part of their thing to patrol the police to, present, to prevent police brutality. But the way that they marched and the way that they dressed has a very kind of militaristic, hyper-masculine, fascistic quality. Uh, it, like within the Black Panthers, there were a lot of debates about should they embrace LGBTQ and also women's liberation movements in the 60s and early 70s, because uh, that was kind of at odds with their culture of, of masculinism, right? Um, so, and, and, you know, their official doctrine was basically Marxist-Leninism, though, right? Like, they all had a copy of Mao's, um, what was Mao's, the book, the, I forgot what it's called, um, the Little Red, Red book. book. Yeah, the Little, yeah. Yeah, the little Red Book, yeah. <laughs> right? So, it's like, okay, well, that's explicitly, you know, kind of like a communist ideology that is historically uh, diametrically opposed to fascism, yet a lot of their behaviors and and uh, aesthetics were very fascistic, right? So it's interesting to think about these things from, from different uh, perspectives. I want to talk about another, I'll read to you another passage from the book and then kind of get into uh, non regressive, non uh, uh, reactionary ways of addressing these same problems, right? So uh, Boehner here is, is uh, talking about Heidegger. He says, We live wholly, or at least mainly, in the present doing our mundane tasks and fulfilling what our mediocre society expects of us in the way of habitual routines. This is what Heidegger calls the tranquilized everydayness of inauthentic Dasein. No mystery, no awe. Our social existence is prosaic and banal. And for most of us, our own experience of life is prosaic and banal. In his book on Schelling, Heidegger calls this self-stupefying, self-anesthetic, Sizing, I can never say that, routine. Uh, he clearly regards it as the norm in democratic culture, right? So he's talking about this deep uh, existential alienation from their own depths and mysteries of beingness uh, and, and this kind of deracination of that. My question, of course, right, and this gets back to what we were just talking about, about uh, foregrounding ethnicity as the dominant colon that people should be rooting into. Uh, there's obviously a problem in the modern society that's perpetuated by all of these modern developments. 
um, of deracination, alienation, disconnection, disenchantment. But the question to me really comes down to, so what is the ontological entity that we should be rerouting into, right? It, it can't be an individual self because that kind of perpetuates uh, modern forms of atomization. Uh, group identity can obviously become very problematic for very obvious reasons. Uh, ethnic identity, uh, national identity, like it seems like what all of the options, all of the categories that we're given for what we should reground ourselves in can produce, can lead to a problematic outcome. So how do you think about specifically through the lens of addressing deracination, what should we root into? What, how do we think about these entities? Yeah. Who should we identify with depends a lot on who we are, like who, who we means. And when you look at it in a developmental context, you would assume that there are different types of being a we. Right? So you might be focused on your relationship or focused on your extended community or focused on your city or focused on your people. And I think it's useful to have those. Obviously, at this point in world history, we have to be generating some kind of planetary we. And we have to be thinking about that in a way that absorbs and works with other we's. But all of these we's at all these different scales can be critiqued as being more or less healthy, right? Because as soon as we've assumed a scale or some strata of we's, then we have a problem where we say, well, this kind of we works well with the other layers and this kind of we does not, right? There's a kind of tribalism that works well with nationalism, it works well with planets and works well with individuals there's a kind of tribalism that doesn't there's a kind of globalism that works well with nationalities works well with tribes works well with individuals and there's a kind that does not right so we need to be looking at an additional um, dimension right what's healthier and what's less healthy in terms of being a we identity at multiple scales because we're all going to be nested in, in a set of we's of different scales that are um um, more or less productive and more or less natural. And so we also have to be able to think that there's playful ways. There's some ways are very basic, right? Your genetic we uh, seems very rooted in naturalism. Now, if you decide you're also a Star Trek fan and you're going to belong to the subculture of Star Trek fans, then you're building up a we. Now, you have some free choice. It's more arbitrary than your genetic we. But nonetheless, both the arbitrary and the naturalistically rooted we's are going to operate at different scales and should be judged not on whether it's possible for them to be perverted into a regressive mode, but should be judged on what the factors are which will tend to skew that we in a healthy or an unhealthy fashion, right? There's, you could have a nationality that's really pro-planetary and pro-individual, like the fantasy of uh, American <laughs> nationalism has been. Or you could have a nationalism that's extremely opposed to the individual and to the planetary. So the question is, which of these, which versions of these we's um, can we embrace as being um, collaboratively operative with the other we's? So we're like, what it's very specific. Um, what are the factors that cause a we to be the kind of we that works with other we's? In which case, the weeness is not a problem. Or what are the factors that cause the we to break away from the other we's, in which case the weeness is a problem. And this could be uh, your individual um, plural self, could be your small group, could be your city, could be your nation, could be your uh, planet. 
I think we're not quite sure what the role of the nation state is. The nation state dominates modernity, right? And it's a little bit of an open question whether nation states are something like peoples that can help modulate between individuals and the planetary or whether nation states are an arbitrary and false layer that's inhibiting the relationship between peoples and planet. Uh, that's one of the questions that I think is objectively at stake in a lot of these discussions. I just need to say that we-ness is kind of a funny word. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I like I like this this approach of the fractal we. Uh, I think I think that's something that we need to consider. I was reflecting on my own sense of we-ness <laughs> and, and identification patterns and groups or entities that I would feel I gain a sense of rootedness in, right? Like for example, uh, I'm Japanese. I'm you know Japanese, uh, a person from Hawaii. So I come. My my family is uh, are you know Japanese uh, immigrants to Hawaii. Um, so I don't totally identify as being Japanese, like a Japanese person from Japan, right? Uh, I I feel like I'm Japanese Hawaiian. That's kind of my cultural, ethnic background. Uh, and also raised in a Zen Buddhist temple, so I can have the Buddhist tradition, Buddhist Japanese Hawaiian tradition, which is kind of its own thing, right? Kind of scaffolds my life, uh, given that that was my upbringing for so many years. And then there's also a strong sense of American identity. Um, and, and you know, I do have a health, I, I like to think a healthy dose of American pride and patriotism. But also more locally, I also identify as a Pacific Northwesterner. I live in Oregon and outside of Portland. So there's kind of a Pacific Northwest, West Coast cultural thing too. Uh, and as a cosmopolitan global citizen, sure, you know, right? I, I, I could keep going, right? I, I, I do Asian, I go to a Asian men's groups to talk about specific topics. So there's kind of like a, that. And so I'm, I'm wondering too, like, you know, I think there's a, there's a kind of a um, non-exclusive mode of identification with many we's. I think that's kind of how I derive my sense of identity, right? You can, you can think of it ideologically, right? Who are my meta-ideological allies and tribe members that I find a sense of solidarity with and can kind of ground into that entity I'm, I'm creating, right? Um, and I was telling Jeremy that I almost called this podcast meta-tribal politics to really emphasize the social part of it. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, but I'm curious for you though, like, like personally, like how do you think about this for yourself? I mean, you're a Canadian and that, that you've referenced that uh, multiple times uh, and probably have a good <laughs> dose of Canadian pride. Um, but I don't know how you think about other things in terms of tradition or even like ethnicity and race and those kind of uh, identity variables for yourself. I think about it like, um, like doing quantum physics. Where is the electron right now, right? <laughs> and when you do the math, you're like, well, it's a little bit over here and it's a little bit over here. It's a lot over here. It's a lot more over here, right? To do quantum mechanics, you have to do it statistically, right? And that's one of the reasons some people go to a multiverse scenario where you go, well, they're all happening. Some of them are happening more than others relative to this particular context. So when I think about identification, my underlying assumption is I'm in every possible group, but in different degrees, right? So I'm, I identify fairly strongly with being a male. I identify less with being a woman, but not zero, right? None of the possible identities are at zero and none of the possible identities are at 100%. This is Wait, a metaphysics. Can, can, we hear, can we hear how Laban Pascal partly identified as a woman? <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm, I'm curious, like if you have an example of that, what do you mean by that? Well, um, one way of thinking about it is, look, all 
all fetuses start out female until the mother's body um, exert, uh, exposes them to androgenizing chemicals, right? So my penis was originally a clitoris. That's how it started, <laughs> right? I have a modified clitoris. <laughs> That's an image I won't be able to get out of my breasts. mind. <laughs> I have breasts, they're, right? They're not that full, but they are, they're there, <laughs> right? It's not out of the question that I can have a cock in my mouth. <laughs> Right. There are a lot there. Right? There are quite a number of things that I could have in common with some stereotype notion of what a female is. I just have more in common with a notion of what male is. Right. Same with Canadian. I'm fairly Canadian. I'm somewhat American. I'm a little bit Mozambican. Not very much, but I, I think of it as a like a scatter plot. Right, the set of things that build up statistically in different areas. So I think that's from an integrative or a meta level perspective. You assume all of these things are in play as your possible identities. What you're in practical terms, you're most interested in the intersections between the ones where you have a lot of identification. Even though what you want from a spiritual point of view is also an ability to be able to widen the lens out to your full set of identifications. Right quarks and i have something in common quantum fields and i have something in common right we're all in the group of real things that's a primary identity group of some kind but we don't often experience that unless we're having particular altered state experiences so there's a special class of identities that we use for social exchange <laughs> right so yeah Nietzschean canadian fine now as a canadian you're kind of american too <laughs> <laughs> not quite 80 percent, something like that you know sometimes you say well when we evaded invaded iraq and you're like who am i talking about <laughs> the american government i'm not even in that country but that's how it mm. feels sometimes mm. right the, the, mm. these identity seems are overlapping and probabilistic is how i experience them right well i think there's an interesting question though of whether we're talking about the molecular makeup of your being or having a dick in your mouth there's still a question of to what degree do you subjectively identify with those identity signifiers? Like, like to right. what degree that, does that's that the question, right? personal? To what degree? And the question to what degree implies there's a huge number of options as to what those degrees are, right? Do I, do I identify at degree 0.5 or do I identify at degree 90? Something like that, right? Mm -hmm. or, or another way to think about it, if, if that identity was taken away from you somehow, your subjective identification with that object was destroyed to what degree would you feel like that would be a death of the self that's kind of how i think about it yeah now that's really important when we look at things like you know you do like a wilbur graph and you're like okay so here i am a whole on which means i have an objective a subjective a singular a plural a, a, an ethos like and a systemic like dimension so when i look at my ethos like dimension of the coherence that i've generated by being part of what seem to be cultural fields how important is that right well on a four quadrant graph that's one quarter important that's a full quarter <laughs> of your identity comes from the possibilities of being identified with or being identified as a mutuality with others right so i definitely have a lot of that and that divides subdivides into two groups like one is your private relationships and one is sort of your public relationships right if you had to decide whether you're more identified with your wife or with the united states 
you wouldn't be sure exactly. They're, they're different kinds of things. They have something in common. They're both forms of mutual identification. Uh, but one of them is more general and one is more specific. When we look at the general identities, this is where we get into the kind of conservative reactionary Dugan arguments, which are saying that we have these inherited, built up um, geographic, ethnocultural identity groups that we need to be a part of. And if we don't have access to those, and if we can't assert those in the world, then we lose something fundamental to our identity. Now, that is, that's got two problems to it. There, there's, there's one good thing about it and two problematic things. The two problematic things are one, those things exist by being created. And the job is not to fall back to the ones we think we've inherited. Right. The job is to make them anew. Right? You're only a good Russian if you are inventing new Russianness. You're not a good Russian if you're falling back to Russian purity. That's a self-destructive move that is analogous to the fascist move, which is analogous to the suicide move. Right? Hitler was not good for Germany. It was a suicide move, a destruction through rolling back to purity. Um, <laughs> I know I said there was a good one and two bad ones, but I can't remember the other bad one. The good one is that you need to mobilize with others in order to establish a meaning and in order B to be capable of taking collective action in the world. And the world requires us to take collective action. So one of the things we would be looking at right now in world history is what are the problems we are facing and what level of group identity is capable of tackling those problems. So if we're looking at global climate change, if we're looking at biodiversity die-offs, if we're looking at accumulating toxicity and pollution, if we're looking at the problem of artificial intelligence, if we're looking at the problem of, hey, an asteroid could hit this planet and wipe us out, a solar flare could take down the internet, if we're looking at those problems, it's not likely that an ethnic type identity level is going to be able to handle that, right? Something like a metamodern identity sensibility, which is semi-international, semi-cosmopolitan, that kind of identity level seems to be the one at which we could actually handle the problems that we're facing. So I think we need to say to the people who want to fall back into ethnic identities that A, those identities are not the we's that are capable of handling the objective situation that we find ourselves in, and B, falling back in purity is not how these identities are produced in the first place. They are produced by integrating what appears to be different from those identities. Right, right. In terms of the benefit that you mentioned, it reminded me of a concept called strategic essentialism. And that was developed by an Indian uh, post-colonial feminist theorist named Gayatri Spivak. And strategic essentialism, is, I think, is actually a really interesting and kind of cool concept. Although I think she later disavowed the term because it was being co-opted and misappropriated by far-right nationalists. But it basically means exactly what you said, right? That sometimes groups need to mobilize and, and cohere around arbitrary categories in order to solve collective action problems, right? So you can so the essentialization of that group category is done consciously and deliberately for some kind of pragmatic end. And I, I, I think a lot about this in terms of also ideological reification and how the maps become the territories uh, because we act as if 
they are, right? So through action and behavior, we tend to reify things. Uh, that's how I think about ritual, right? You're, we're reifying the sacred. We're reifying the symbolic through taking action. That's just my own lens on it. So I, I think it would be cool to live in a world where we're not just um, in a postmodern deconstructive style, right? Just completely deconstructing any notion of anything substantial into nothing or into just an endless sea of cultural signifiers with no co cohesion, right? But that we can consciously engage in identifications and rootedness and be fluid with them. And then when we want to essentialize them or congeal them, we do them consciously, right? This avoids the trap of unconscious reification and essentialization. And then I'm envisioning, my kind of fantasy, right, is we can deliberately engage in this exercise of uh, reification and essentialization, and then de-reifying and deconstructing it, and then re-essentializing and recreating something, and being very fluid and playing with those reifications, right? Yeah, I would say there are two ways, and they're complementary, to go about combating the problem of um, uh, degenerative reification of group identities, right? One of them is to approach it from the metamodern attitude of sincere play, right? That we're doing an as if essentialism, that we're tactically deploying it, or, you know, Verveke talks about languages of explaining, languages of training, right? When you're training someone to do something, then it may be important for them to pretend they absolutely are something. <laughs> now, when you're actually explaining the situation, then it's equally important to say, well, you're not exactly absolutely that thing. But nonetheless, it may be productive. Right. So we can go at that from a point of view, a multi-perspectival point of view, where there's an element of constructive, productive play, where we're doing this on purpose, we're doing it voluntarily, we understand it's in a metacognitive framework that doesn't absolutely apply, but we're going to take on the absolutism in a performative way in order to cause positive results for ourselves and our loved ones and our society and our world. So that's one of the ways that you decompress that essentialism. The other way you decompress that essentialism is to think to yourself uh, that there's that the real essentialism is at a level that's hidden from your consciousness, right? So let's say you said, all right, I believe that it's um, important for the Russian people to be Russian, but do you then suppose that you know what it is to be Russian, right? There's a, there's a good chance that the majority of what it really means to be Russian is something you would have to discover, something that's currently unconscious even to you, right? That just because you are American or Canadian or Asian or Black or Russian, that doesn't mean you really know what it means to be those things, right? There's a, there's a narcissistic uh, fantasy involved in thinking that whatever you happen to know and feel about your identity is the essence of that identity, which obscures the fact that most of all experience is unknown and unconscious, right? How much do I know about what it is to be me? Do I pretend that to be me is merely the expression of everything I happen to know about myself at the moment? Or am I aware in in a sense, in the Heideggerian and Evola sense, that what it means to be me is something of which I am not yet fully aware. That what it means to be Black, that what it means to be Russian, that what it means to be a man or a woman is something of which you are not yet fully aware. That merely to act on your current tendencies and thoughts is not to be able to fully enact the identity that you are a part of. Right. So that's another way to decompress the essentialism is to say, yes, there may be an essentialism, but it's not an essentialism that you necessarily are competent of immediately. Just because you decide you like Christianity doesn't mean you're really doing what Christ said you should do. 
right? You're not even necessarily competent to be a Christian just because you identify with it. So there may be something essential in these different typologies to identify with, but there's no guarantee at all that any individual who does that act of identification is actually aware of or enabled, able to exhibit the tendencies that are essentially characteristic of that type. Yeah, it's a great point. One of my favorite books on uh, identity, leftist identity theory is called um, Identity-Based Development, Integrating Emerging Frameworks. And it basically takes, uh, it actually is now a more mainstream academic field. And you'll find it referenced in some of the anti-racist uh, literature, where people's sense of identity evolves through various stages, with, which uh, coincidentally correlate very, very neatly with uh, the stage models that we're familiar with. Right, so someone's sense of being uh, Latino or Latinx or whatever you want to call it, their sense of that identity does evolve through two uh, greater levels of depths and complexity. Right, so their understanding of what it means to be Latin to them is is constantly evolving and mutating and shifting. Right, and, and I think that's an, that's something I talked to uh, our friend David Hartful about in regards to exploring our own racial identities. Right, like we can go through a process of enriching our understanding not only of ourselves and our cultural and ethnic histories, but also of the world and society through this kind of introspective and growthful process, right? So when I work with a lot of groups, you know, I live in Portland, so obviously a lot of very left groups, uh, this is actually a key leverage point for myself, right? It's how do, okay, these are the frameworks and categories that we're going to play with. How do we deepen and sophisticate and complicate our understanding of them, right? And let's explore that mutually together and see what we come up with and produce positive externalities in the process of doing that exploration, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, David's work is great. He brings a good spiral dynamics lens to um, group identity development, right? It's one of those things where, you know, like uh, there's the classic thing about white people, so to speak. And white people is kind of an invented concept over time. But if you find yourself in that concept, it behooves you to recognize that you were in that concept. And that recognition is not going to ultimately be your limit. But it may be that you go from not noticing you have that identity to really noticing you have that identity to then being something more than that identity. But the pre-trans fallacy comes in if you assume that your refusal to take that identity is somehow an act of transcendence. <laughs> yeah, there was something else there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to bring this back around to not season philosophers. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it really strikes to the heart of the matter, you know. Oh, yeah. Here's the thing I wanted to mention about that, because I was when I was trying to bring it back around to, say, Nietzsche. Now, Nietzsche hates Germans. This is not often recognized by people who over-associate with the Nazis, but he literally always has terrible things to say about Germans. He mostly says nice things about Jews, but he's quite um, internationalist in his thinking. And he hates Germans and he hates anti-Semitic nationalist Germans most of all. And he tells people he's Polish, <laughs> right? If you read his autobiography, he claims to be descended from Polish nobility. Because the Poles are a great people and the Germans are some kind of like despicable low class mob mentality thugs that he can't ever get along with. So there's two elements there that, to um, how do you incorporate identity and also transcend identity. And one is to really deepen and accept it and live through it to the point where it's transparent to your experience without being canceled. And the other is what Nietzsche is doing, which is an imaginative play of identity formation, 
right? Because clearly he's born in Germany, but he's decided to say that he's adjacent to the German personality by accepting a Polish personality. And there's something interesting about that play. And people go, listen, I may appear to be black and American, but actually what I fundamentally am is a Furby or something like that, right? So that by adding these additional imaginative voluntary identities, we're able to decompress our identity. We don't lose it, but we afford ourselves the possibility of relating to it differently by adding in some imagination-based additional identities that we voluntarily accept. So I think those are both good strategies for being able to uh, affirm, but also not be trapped by collective identity frameworks. When we are trapped, then like if we feel like we that what we know about our identity is collective and is 100%, is totalized, that's where it starts to become regressive because the totality precludes the option of integrating new things into the identity. Right. And if you look at collective identity as being something that's cultivated over time, it can only be cultivated by taking other things into it so that it can grow. Just like we as organisms have to constantly take what is not us into our body to sustain our body. Right. So to be American or to be Jewish or to be German or to be Russian means taking in things that aren't part of your identity and making them into your identity. And you don't have the space to do that if you think your current notion of that identity 100 percent fills it up. If it's a totalized notion, it's almost inherently regressive. The analogy that came to my mind is like an open versus closed system. Right. And that open systems can continue, continually exchange matter and energy and information with its greatest, greater environment that leads to novel forms of emergence. But a closed system is subject to the second law of thermodynamics and will eventually endure an entropic slide into oblivion. <laughs> so for all the ethno-nationalists out there, you know, take that into consideration. There's an interesting thing about, I bring this up in a number of talks, which is the question of the nation state, right? Currently the, the let's say, liberal centrist uh, <laughs> a duopoly global industrial order um, is arranged according to nation states and nation states. It's a hybrid term, right? Has nationality has statehood built into the term statehood applies to a kind of abstract entity, which has control over uh, legislative protocol, military forces, economic protocols, things like that. But a nationality is a group experienced of identities sometimes, but not exclusively based on inheritance. Now, if you have a situation where the nation state um, does not perfectly correspond to a nation, what do you then do, right? If the state and the nation are not the same, if there's too much divergence, then there's seemingly a tension that must be resolved, right? So you could argue that the United States is a state in which two, at least two different large nations are constantly fighting for control of the state right, the reds and the blues, so to speak. And the fact that the state is constantly contested by the two nations causes a retardation of its ability to make progress as a state. So everyone's looking at the United States going, why don't they actually enact any of the things they're saying, right? I love that Joe Biden speech. I just don't think he's going to do any of those things. Why not, right? Because they're caught up in this differential between statehood and nationhood. And the reciprocal of that is something like um, nations who wish to have their own states and currently do not, right? 
in Canada? Should Quebec be its own country? Should Scotland be its own country? Should the Kurds have a homeland, right? So your two options here in terms of getting parity between statehood and nationhood is one, you break up the states to fit the nations that already exist, or you try to cultivate a nationhood that fits the current existing states. These are both difficult, but in different ways, right? If you were to say, try to breed a real American race, um, it's going to take time. It's probably going to take some violence. All of the existing ethnicities took a long time and a lot of violence to achieve. There's going to be a lot of top-down intervention to cause people to uh, grow in a way that is framed by their statehood. You could do that. The other thing is, well, you could break up the states to fit the nations, right? And in a way, the Dugan-Putin argument is like this. If you say that anybody who is of Russian descent physically or culturally and who speaks Russian is actually part of the Russian identity. And therefore we can go into states and partition those states according to Russian national identity. Well, you're in a rough position because states don't want to give up any of their power, right? Spain does not want to secede or cede the Basques region, right? It's not like the Basques would vanish. They would still, all the people would still be there. They would still have intimate relations, but the identity of the statehood of Spain feels like it's under attack if it has to give up territory officially to the Basques so they can be their own state. Likewise, it's offensive to some elements of the Russian identity that Russians in Ukraine aren't part of the Russian state. They want the boundaries of statehood to be rewritten to correspond to the ethnicities but that's going to involve a violence war and overcoming the egotism of states that don't want to cede any ground so if you're going to build a nationality that fits a state it's a long time when it's violent if you're going to revise states to fit nationalities you're going to have to overcome all the existing nationalities which is going to involve war and strife so it's a really thorny problem. So if we were to assume that the correct organs in the body of the planetary social organization are something like nation states, we face a very difficult choice as to whether we should build nationalities to fit states or revise states to fit nationalities. Yeah, and one of the you know the textbook definitions of nationalism, right, is simply having coherence between the nation and the state. Yeah. And as you alluded to, right, you need a certain level of coherence between nation and state in order to have a functional state uh, with all of the gridlock and polarization that exists in Washington and in the, the body politic writ large, it's impossible to get anything done. So I think we're, what, I've, what I've kind of titanium manned and fantasized about is a kind of frac fractal nationalist uh, system, right, where you can have autonomous zones of identity and break them up in very granular and very distinct ways, right? So we can think about it in terms of ideology, we can think about it in terms of uh, ethnic and racial groups, we can think about it in terms of cultures, like multiculturalism, we can think about it in terms of regions, right? Like the Midwest and the South, like Southern culture, right? The Bible Belt, that's a thing, right? West Coast liberal culture, that's, a, that's its own thing. So there are different ways we can categorize what the competing Holonic factions are. Now, how, the question is, to me, how do we create coherence when there are so many diverse identities and groups? 
that can lead to a kind of emergent coherence that doesn't retard the collective intelligence of the nation state. Um, so how do we account for all of that diversity, right? And my disagreement with a lot of right-wing nationalists is kind of the arch enemy of, of conservative nationalism is multiculturalism because multiculturalism creates incoherence uh, on the part of the nation culturally. My, I am much more concerned with ideological and political polarization. I actually think that's a bigger problem and we should be trying to address that if the United States, for example, is gonna stay at the size that it is and have any kind of functional democratic system. I think polarization ideologically and, and partisan tribalism and factionalism is actually a bigger problem. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm focused on addressing, right? Um, but the, the question is still, there is still a tremendous amount of cultural diversity. And so, so how to create coherence and how to think about the pressures of integration and disintegration and coherence between autonomous uh, uh, bodies is to me what I'm, what I'm most interested in. Yeah, I hear three things in that. Like, uh, first of all, in terms of what I was just discussing, right? If you were gonna say like, how do we make states accommodate nationalities? Well, you would have to have constitutions that are written in a way that they're flexible, right? And they would have to have some criteria. You have to say, well, for example, here in Canada, should should Quebec be its own nation or should it continue to be a province of Canada? Because, well, what would be the criteria? You can say, well, if if shifting it to its own nationality were to improve our security and economic position and ecological position, then great, let them do it. If it were to diminish those factors, then don't let them do it. So you would have to have a constitution that was set up to have some parameter and some procedure for adding or releasing nations. All of the nation states would have to become flexible in their programming. They would have to have a code that says how to own new land or how to release land and under what conditions and how would you do that? The other side of that is, well, how would you build a nation that fits a state? You would need to understand some basic principles about how you establish collective identity, and you would need to aggressively implement that. Right? We've talked about this in some other spaces, right? because the problem of education, the problem of prisons, the problem of immigration, they're all in many ways the same problem, which is how do you take a person and cause them to become a reliable citizen? Right? You need a whole bunch of institutions breeding something in common between the people which historically we've gotten because the people all received the same top-down oppression or because they all had the same enemy or because they all spoke the same language, right? There's a number of things we can do. And going forward, there's probably a lot more things we could do if we actually set ourselves the task of figuring out what does breed collective identity between people. So those are those answers to those two parts I was talking about before. We can go into either of them. But this additional question you were saying you're concerned about, which is polarization, I think it needs to be looked at, not just in the, uh, say, Steve McIntosh post-progressive way, which is to say these are different um, mimetic tribes that have to get along together, but that one of these tribes, the modern system, which is being critiqued by all of these philosophers we introduced at the beginning, um, does, like I said earlier on, it creates and feeds upon polarization. It's not merely that there's a modern, postmodern, and pre-modern group struggling with each other culturally in the United States. It's that modernism operates by splitting into two halves and taking advantage of the rebalancing flow between those two halves. 
right? If there's a debt to be paid, if there's a disaster, if there's a resource over there and it needs to be over here, if there's electrons at this end of the battery and they need to be at this end of the battery, if there's a prosecutor and a defender in a legal case, all of the operating systems of modernity tend to generate a polarization and then skim the results of the repolarizing. Right? So you create a differential as if you were designing a, a 17th century perpetual motion machine, <laughs> set the ball going because it has a differential. And as it goes, it hits all the wheels. And as the wheels turn, the people who get paid, get paid. So the modern system of bureaucratic liberal institutions is inherently binary. It generates dichotomies. And then in the struggle between those dichotomies, they institutionally get paid. That's how it's set up to run. So increasing polarization is the result of modernity holding sway over the condition. And I think it's part of modernity's self-protection reflex to say that the polarization is primarily a result of pre-modern thinkers. And even they're even looking at transmodern thinkers and saying, you guys are basically pre-modern thinkers. How dare you challenge the modern system? Your challenge to the modern system is creating fascism and polarization. But I would say, even though many of their solutions are incorrect, they are correct in saying, no, that problem, the fascism and the polarization, that is the natural output of the modern code. That's what it does. Very, very interesting way of framing it, right? Because there's an almost Marxist element in there of this, the extractive nature of the modern system that feeds off of polarization dynamics that it creates structurally and institutionally and skims off the top to benefit a few at the expense of the people, right? So it's a kind of a extractive polarization mechanism that's inbuilt in modernity. Um, which I think is a great place to end, folks. So thank you. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> have fun, everyone. In conclusion, marks. <laughs> that, was, that was my agenda this whole conversation, right? I set it up in a certain way. We're supposed to talk about titanium man to fascism and it ends with marks, right? There we go. Uh, thank God Nate's not here and we get to be crypto communists. Exactly, right. <laughs> I actually poisoned him down, down in the bayou. <laughs> Um, well, Layman, uh, thank you. This has been a pleasure as always. Very stimulating, very thought-provoking. Any uh, final thoughts that kind of encapsulate our, this whole hour and a half? Um, well, um, Dugan's a fool. Evola's <laughs> an interesting occultist. Heidegger is a degenerate retro-romantic with brilliant intellectual observations of phenomenology. And Nietzsche is much more of an integralist than you think he is. That's a beautiful summary. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Layman. Cheers, Ryan.